Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Conan Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is going to be another pretty lengthy episode. We have a couple of cinematic releases. The mildly Oscar-baity musical Cyrano as well as the plucky underdog British movie, The Duke. Released directly onto Sky Cinema and therefore viewable at home, we have a couple of films. The low-key, rather artful western Old Henry, and what amounts to a one-woman thriller, The Desperate Hour. Already released at the end of last year onto streaming platforms, but arriving absurdly early onto Netflix, we have another mildly Oscar-baity film, the adaptation of the award-winning play The Humans, and also a final straggler that was released Valentine's Day week, available through Amazon Prime Video, we have The Hating Game. And finally, released directly onto Netflix, the latest candy-coated visual feast from Jean-Pierre Jeunet, Big Bug. So, lots to get to, and without further ado, let's just get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Cyrano is a new musical film directed by Joe Wright who has an interesting career. He seems to split his time pretty evenly between directing prestige Oscar-baity films like Pride and Prejudice, Atonement and Darkest Hour, and much more broader, much more populist stuff like Hannah, Pan and The Woman in the Window. He also did that rather interesting adaptation of Anna Karenina, which I think sits somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. But Joe Wright is certainly an eclectic director, and now he is directing a musical. This musical was initially put on in 2018 by Erica Schmidt, who acts as the screenwriter of this, and original songs were done by the rock band The National. Now, I used to do a music podcast, so my attitude to music has been somewhat skewed. I have no idea if songs that stick in my mind stuck in my mind because I heard them over and over and over again on other people's music podcasts, or if they were actually popular. So I do not know if this is a well-known track, but when I think of The National, the one track of theirs I remember is Fake Empire from their 2007 album, Boxer. Turn the light on 
I really like that track, and I really like The National, so when I heard that they were doing this musical version of Cyrano, I thought, ooh, that sounds good, let's go along and see it. And as on stage in 2018 and 19, in the film version, Cyrano is being played by Peter Dinklage, whose Roxanne is also the same from the stage version in Hayley Bennett. And unlike the traditional staging of Cyrano de Bergerac, based on the 1897 Edmund Rostand play, unlike having a large nose, as in the original in this version, Cyrano is a dwarf. But still helps his friend, in this case played by the excellent Kelvin Harrison Jr., to woo the woman he has loved from afar for decades, Roxanne. And his words and Christian's appearance are enough to woo the beautiful Roxanne. But can Cyrano live with his deception and will the deception ever be uncovered? I mean, Cyrano de Bergerac has become one of those archetypal stories which you can do over and over again in many different versions. We had the Gérard Depardieu French-language version in the early 90s. We had the Steve Martin version Roxanne, uh, a modern-day retelling in, I think that was 1987. That's a, a charming little film. Only last year we had a queer teen version of Cyrano de Bergerac in the half of it, which is excellent. And the Russian producer Timur Bekbambatov, who has done those screen life films, Searching and Unfriended, the type of film which is only what it looks like on somebody's computer screen, has just finished a version of Cyrano de Bergerac in that screen life style called Liked. I mean, it's actually directed by an American woman, but he's the producer of it. And that's such an obvious idea. Why hasn't somebody done that before? I mean, in our social media age where everything is done on a computer, everything is done by text, why not do a version of Cyrano de Bergerac only on a computer? But yes, apparently that's coming our way this year, which I'm actually really, really looking forward to. But nevertheless, Cyrano or the Cyrano archetype is something that has been done over and over again. So why not do it as a musical, and why not get an excellent band like The National to write songs? The reason not to do it is that in order to pull it off, you need a performer with some form of noticeable physical difference. And yes, getting Peter Dinklage perhaps the most famous different actor in the modern day to perform Cyrano sounds like a good idea. But Peter Dinklage is not known as a singer, and that's where the whole of this film basically falls down. Yes, he can sing, but he's not a good enough singer to hang an entire musical upon and maybe because of casting peter dinklage you're not the best singer 
the rest of the cast also aren't great singers either. I mean, Hayley Bennett and Kelvin Harrison Jr. and Ben Mendelsohn, who plays the antagonist of the film De Guiche, none of them are particularly good singers. And this is highlighted even more when, in the second half of the musical Cyrano, there's kind of a chorus number, a number with many different voices in it. And the three main voices we see in that particular scene are Glenn Hansard, famous for writing and starring in Once, Scott Amidon, renowned singer-songwriter and Mr. Beth Orton, and Scott Folan, renowned singer-songwriter and West End stage star. So those three people in that chorus number can sing, and comparing them to the rest of the cast who basically can't, or certainly not well enough to carry a musical, it does stand out. And that's where the whole thing falls down. Yes, make it a musical, and we can do lots of different things. I mean, I found it really interesting that essentially the Dessner brothers and Matt Beminger, or rather Matt and Karen Beminger, a.k.a. the National or the Nationals songwriting team. I mean, Karen Beminger doesn't actually appear on stage, but she writes most of the lyrics with her husband. But anyway, the National did a rather interesting thing. Basically, what they've got in this film is a leitmotif. You hear in the trailer a repeated phrase, I'd do anything for someone to say. And many different people say that lie or sing that line at many different points in the film it becomes a repeated motif a light motif of the different people singing that line singing mildly different things about what they want and it manages to connect everything together i mean it also kind of makes it feel like there's just one song which is being repeated over and over again because i don't think there are a lot of differences between a lot of the songs in this musical. But that's not the worst thing in the world. But when you have this leitmotif, it does kind of feel like we're just singing one giant song. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions. That chorus song, which I was just talking about, Wherever I Fall, that is definitely different. And there's also a song called Every Letter, where Peter Dinklage, Hayley Bennett, and Calvin Harrison Jr. are singing about writing these letters to each other, or Peter Dinklage writing to Hayley Bennett, at least. And I have never seen letters written and read in such an erotic manner. It's actually quite uncomfortable seeing you know, these people writhing about and reading these letters. But, yeah, I mean... <sighs> Much as I like The National, I'm not sure their style of music fits in the musical tradition or the musical theatre tradition. And it becomes something of an issue. I mean, the major issue is the core issue that Peter Dinklage isn't a good enough singer to carry a musical. But another issue is something which I'm not sure is a fundamental issue with the original Edmond Rostand play and all the adaptations thereof, or of this particular film and this particular portrayal of Roxanne by Hayley Bennett. But as I was watching this version of Cyrano, 
Roxanne came across as a rather shallow and self-centered pretty girl. You know, I am pretty, therefore I can get away with absolutely anything. And being deliberately cruel. I mean, possibly being unwittingly cruel, but she is being cruel to Cyrano and, to a lesser degree, to Sebastian, Calvin Harrison Jr. She really does come across as shallow and petty in this version. And be definitely in the performance of Hayley Bennett, and possibly this is an inherent flaw with the original play, which let's not forget was written in eighteen ninety seven where sexual politics were very, very different, but more than anything, she reminded me of another great literary character, Estella from Great Expectations, who has been molded to be cruel and imperious to her male admirers. And that's kind of what I got from Roxanne in this version, or the vibe I got from her. Her expectation is to be cruel. That is her base level attitude. And that's what comes across in this film version. Now, how much of this is the individual performance of Hayley Bennett as directed by Joe Wright, and how much is down to the original text of the play by Edmond Rostand? But nevertheless, I didn't like Roxanne in this version of Cyrano, and I didn't necessarily want her to end up with anybody. In my opinion, she deserved to die abandoned and alone, but (laughs) I don't know, maybe that's. Yeah, modern sexual politics coming into it. I mean, towards the end of the film, there's some very old-fashioned ideas about marriage, which is a layover from the 1897 play, but maintaining them in a 21st century adaptation feels a little bit weird, particularly when I've got so used to the happy ending of something like Steve Martin's Roxanne, and the if not happy, then at least content ending of the half of it, which I really, really did like on Netflix last year, and I do strongly recommend that. I actually recommend it over this film, Cyrano. So, yeah, I saw this film at a preview screening on Valentine's Day itself before its release at the end of February. And it got delayed and delayed and delayed thanks to the pandemic. And also, I think the production company, which I think was Universal, wanted to angle it in the best possible light for Oscar consideration. And yeah, Peter Dinklage as an actor is exceptionally good in this film, Cyrano. It's just dragged down by the fact he can't sing. So... Yeah, at the end of the day, the only Oscar nomination this got was Best Costume Design, which is unsurprising for a period piece. And it has to be said that the production design and the locations which they found for this film are outstanding. The look of this film is impeccable. They filmed it on Sicily, and the architecture of one of the Sicilian 
hilltop towns. It's the perfect environment to put this film version of Cyrano out there. It looks beautiful. Really, really good production design, good choreography, all that kind of stuff. Very, very good acting from Peter Dinklage, but not good singing. So, yeah, there are good things in it, but ultimately I think I was a little bit disappointed by Cyrano. And while I don't think it's a bad film, I don't necessarily think it's a good film either. So for me, Cyrano is a middle-of-the-road, fairly dispassionate meh. Next up, we have The Duke, which is one of the last films from the late Roger Michel, who is best known for directing Notting Hill. But even after that, he didn't have an enormously successful film directing career. He's had notable films like Venus, Le Weekend, and my cousin Rachel, but it seems that most often he was directing in the theatre. I think it demonstrates how long this film has been delayed due to the pandemic, that in 2019, when this film was being made, one of the secondary characters in The Duke is played by Anna Maxwell-Martin, who was Roger Michel's wife. And we briefly see Anna Maxwell Martin's character's daughter in the film, and that is played by Sparrow Michelle, who was Anna Maxwell Martin and Roger Michelle's daughter. But since this film got made, Anna Maxwell Martin separated from Roger Michelle at the end of 2020, and then Roger Michelle died at the end of 2021. It has not been made public the cause of Roger Michel's death, but there are unconfirmed reports he died in his sleep, and Roger Michel also had a history of heart attack, so it looks like natural causes. But yes, this is one of the last films for the late Roger Michel. He has already mostly finished a documentary about Queen Elizabeth II, which is due for release in summer. So this is the penultimate film that Roger Michel finished. And it is one of those plucky underdog stories that the British seem to do so well. And tells the story of Kempton Bunton, played by Jim Broadbent. A mischief-making political activist who in 1961 stole a Goya from the National Gallery in London, and then kept it in the back of a wardrobe in his council house in Newcastle for several years, before eventually giving up when nobody believed that he actually had it. He was trying to make a statement about pensioners, and his particular campaign was free TV licences for pensioners. And when the nation is spending £140,000, an enormous sum of money in 1961, on this painting of the Duke of Wellington by Goya, why don't you spend that money making the lives of pensioners more easy? And that was the statement he was trying to make when he stole this painting. But it didn't necessarily work out that way. So, 
with the disapproval of his rather strict wife, Helen Mirren, who works as a housekeeper for Anna Maxwell Martin, and the tacit encouragement of his adult son, Fionn Whitehead, Jim Broadbent tries to publicise his campaign for free TV licences for pensioners by stealing this incredibly valuable painting. So there's a particular type of biopic, and I've decried it quite recently with King Richard, the biopic of Venus and Serena Williams' father, in that putting out a biopic more often than not involves basically creating a hagiography, brushing over all the flaws in somebody's character, making them seem like the perfect representation of humanity, standing up for what is right, being perfect and encouraging in every way. And it is notable that one of the executive producers of this film is Kempton Bunton's grandson, Christopher Bunton. So it does look at Kempton Bunton through somewhat rose-tinted glasses, but in this particular case, I actually kind of believe it. This kind of troublemaking social justice activist. I mean, it's never outright stated, but I'm absolutely guaranteeing that Kempton Bunsen was a member of the Socialist Party, maybe even the Communist Party. He's got those kinds of ideas about fairness and inclusivity. He's constantly writing plays, which he sends off to the BBC and always receives rejection letters. And one of these plays is about a female Christ and how that would affect the world. And he also stands up for a Pakistani immigrant who is getting bullied by management at a bread factory he is working in. And that feels like absolutely the kind of thing that this character would do and the kind of thing that occurs in this kind of mildly hagiographic biopic. So yeah, I believe that this type of person would do those things. He would be that open, that inclusive, even in 1961. And it feels like the kind of thing he would do. And it feels like the kind of exasperated thing that his long-suffering wife, Helen Mirren, would have to put up with. Helen Mirren is portrayed as a very, very straight-laced character, somebody who's very concerned with propriety, who wants to keep her head down, doesn't want to make a scene, has to put up with her politically active, mischief-making husband. You know, what will people think? I mean, what will my boss, Anna Maxwell Martin, think? And she's actually kind of okay with Kempson Buns, and she likes him. She likes his campaigns. But Anna Maxwell Martin is playing, you know, the wife, the long-suffering wife of a local councillor. So she has a place in society, a place in the culture of Newcastle. She has expectations of propriety put on her, which she wants to break out of, and mildly encouraging her housekeeper's husband. 
is one of the ways that Anna Waxwell Martin is breaking free of her shackles of feminine domesticity in 1961. But Helen Mirren, despite the tacit encouragement of her boss, is still terrified about what people will think of her mischief-making husband, who refuses to pay his TV licence because he thinks it's an unfair tax on the elderly, and actually goes to jail for brief periods for not paying his TV licence. 13 days here, 12 days here, etc, etc. So he's a criminal, technically. He's an activist. He's making public spectacles of himself. He struggles to hold on to a job because of his activism. And Helen Mirren's basically had enough. But one aspect of this film which does constantly come up is the pall of tragedy which is over this family. It is revealed relatively early in the film that the Buntons' 18-year-old daughter died a few years ago and the family is still not dealing with it, or at least dealing with it in its own ways. I mean, Helen Mirren has shut up completely, refuses to even acknowledge her dead daughter, never visits the grave, I will not talk about it. I mean, very tellingly, at one point she says, grief's private, which I think sums up Helen Mirren's character perfectly. And the way that Kempton Bunton, Jim Broadbent, is dealing with it, is writing these plays which the more you hear about them, the more you realise, oh, these are veiled references to his dead daughter, and occasionally not so veiled references to his dead daughter. And that's the way he's chosen to deal with his grief, is this activism and this playwriting, which he doesn't appear to be very good at. And Fionn Whitehead, their son, is caught in the middle of all this, Yes, he he tacitly approves of his father's activism, but wants to keep on his mother's good side. I mean, all he wants to do is pursue his dream of becoming a boat builder, making fancy speedboats for the rich in a little boat shed. But he doesn't quite have the capital yet, but that's his dream. But that is put under threat by the public spectacle that his father is making of himself. So he's somewhat caught in the middle, and Fionn Whitehead is kind of the referee more often than not in his parents bickering so this is a complex story about grief about activism about compromise within a marriage and the lack of compromise within a marriage but it still has that twinkly underdog kind of attitude to it i mean we know that this is going to end in a trial i mean if you've seen the trailer and also the film opens with the start of the trial with Barrister Matthew Good trying to make a case for Jim Broadbent having borrowed this Goya rather than stolen it. And yeah, it, it's it's the kind of plucky underdog British movie that we do so well. And this is a perfectly acceptable version of that. It's perfectly entertaining, perfectly solid, tells a triumph over adversity story, a, a mischief-making, thumbing-your-nose-at-authority kind of story, which, again, the British do tend to like more often than not. And it's a perfectly acceptable example of that genre. So, yeah, 
The Duke is a nice, safe, comfortable little film, which you might seem as damning with faint praise, but that's what it's trying to be. So it absolutely hits its target. And I did kind of like The Duke. So for me, The Duke, currently available in cinemas, is a solid, pretty unspectacular, but entertaining, meh. Home Movies Old Henry is a low-key, somewhat arthouse western, which did get some attention when it premiered at the 2021 Venice Film Festival, but has ended up as a Sky Cinema exclusive here in the UK, so you can watch it at home. It is written and directed by Potsy Poncaroli, who has one feature-length film in his past, all the way back in 2012, and since then has mostly been acting as a producer of small-scale films and one television show starring Billy Ray Cyrus, which is based in Tennessee. And indeed, this film, Old Henry, is shot in Tennessee, even though it is set in Oklahoma. In fact, it is Oklahoma Territory in 1906, where a farmer, Henry, played by Tim Blake Nelson, is eking out an existence on a homestead with his teenage son, Gavin Lewis. Tim Blake Nelson's wife has died, and his teenage son is straining against the restrictions that his father has put upon him. Unlike most of the teenage boys in the local area, and in this Oklahoma Territory that's a very, very wide area, but the boys of his acquaintance are already using guns, shooting guns, going hunting, that kind of thing. But Tim Blake Nelson is absolutely determined that Gavin Lewis will not use a gun. And this is really starting to rankle against this teenager. And this incipient conflict is brought into sharp focus when, out of the blue, a man shows up, Scott Hayes, who has been shot and is also carrying a satchel full of money. Not quite sure what to do with this. Tim Blake Nelson brings Scott Hayes into the homestead and makes sure he doesn't die, but while he is deciding what to do with this very injured man and the large, large amount of money he's carrying, a posse shows up led by Stephen Dorff, a lawman who says, that guy's a robber, hand him over to us and we'll get out of your hair. But very suspicious about the legitimacy of the law in this wild, open territory, Tim Blake Nelson is unsure what to do, and this eventually ends up in a siege-style situation. So can Henry survive? Can he explain the fact that he seems remarkably proficient with firearms for being a small-scale homestead farmer in Oklahoma Territory in 1906? And can his relationship with his son survive this dangerous situation? 
This is a mildly revisionist Western, or at least that's how it presents itself. It's talking about the dangers of the Old West, the horrors, to some degree, of the Old West, the mythology of the Old West, the legends of the outlaws, even though they are within living memory, are starting to be built. I mean, it's more mythology than fact at this point. I mean, one of Scott Hayes' claims to fame, you know, this shot man who has shown up on their doorstep, his claim to fame is he was present at the death of Billy the Kid. And this is something he seems inordinately proud of. So even within living memory, the legends of people like Billy the Kid are still starting to be built. And that is an interesting angle to take. I mean, the very, very recent past has already become legend. And the effect and the mythology of owning and using a gun, it has a totemic quality to it, which I think this film really leads into. The idea that this teenage boy, Gavin Lewis, is so determined to be like the other boys of his acquaintance that much against his father's wishes and knowingly against his father's wishes, he starts practicing with Scott Hayes's gun. And the power and the presence of a firearm, of a gun, of an instrument that can kill people, the ability to use it, the ability to carry it, the willingness to use it does become a part of this story. And Tim Blake Nelson, I mean, you can understand where he's coming from, but he's handling it all wrong. I mean, his attitude is, I did terrible things in my past before I settled down with your mother, who eventually died of tuberculosis. I don't want you to go down the same path. So I am banning you from using firearms. And of course, once you ban somebody from using a gun or anything else, that just makes them want to use it all the more. And that's the situation we're in. I mean, this is the kind of generational conflict we've seen again and again. And I actually think this is one of the major themes of Old Henry, the film, is this generational conflict, is the fact that this father is desperately trying to make his teenage son not commit the same mistakes he made and going about it all wrong and then you have this dangerous situation with outsiders coming in with this injured man scott hayes and stephen dorf and his posse who are morally questionable even though you know they've got the badges on their shirts and everything one of the very opening scenes we have is stephen dorf shooting and running down and essentially torturing somebody for information and this is supposed to be the lawman in this situation i mean this is oklahoma territory in 1906 but even so the lawmen are supposed to be the right side of the law and there's a very very strong argument that stephen dorf is the wrong side of the law i mean Basically, if you cast Stephen Dorff, you know he's going to be some kind of menacing presence of some stripe or another. So who to trust? Can you trust anybody? Is another one of the major themes of this film, Old Henry. 
And I really did like the concept that gets brought up. I mean, Scott Hayes recounts this story that when he was a younger man, I mean, barely a teenager, he remembers being present at the death of Billy the Kid. And as he's recounting this story, I thought, okay, that's an interesting angle. Even this close to the actual events, the legend, the myth, is already being built. I thought, right, that's a really nice angle that writer-director Potsy Poncaroli has put into this film. But, by the end of the film, Potsy Poncaroli is basically shooting the legend. I mean, there is a revelation towards the end which has been very clearly being built up to. I could see this twist coming. And when it was confirmed, when it actually happened... I thought, really, you didn't need to do this. I mean, you were already going down a nice path with this idea of mythology. I mean, something along the lines of that film from, God, it must be close to 10 years ago now, probably over 10 years ago now, The Death of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, or whatever that incredibly long title was. I mean, that was also talking about the very quick mythologizing of the West. And I thought we were going along something along the same lines here, but no. This is actually filming the legend. This is actually turning into a shootout movie with this small homestead surrounded by dangerous gunmen and you know surviving for your life and shooting people and thinking a little bit about the consequences of shooting somebody, a little bit about the taking of a human life. But honestly, not enough considering the build-up we've had to this point. I mean, having you know, a thought-provoking film about the psychology of using a gun, the psychology of being in this literal Wild West situation, and then you just make it a shootout, and you know, people are dying left, right, and centre, with not really enough consequences, with not enough thought being put into it. I mean, it definitely devolves by the end. And the really interesting, subtle, thought-provoking, somewhat melancholy story we've had up to this point just turns into an action movie. And yeah, it was rather disappointing. I think this is definitely a film of two halves. I liked the first half of the film with the, the mythologizing and the father-son dynamics. But the second half really lost me with just the gunplay. So, a mixed bag, but a decent enough movie, I guess. And you can watch it on Sky Cinema, so you don't really have to put much effort into it this side of the Atlantic. So for me, Old Henry, available on Sky Cinema, is a pretty middle-of-the-road meh. The other film released directly onto Sky Cinema this week, which I watched, was The Desperate Hour, which in some territories I believe is still being known under its original title, Lakewood. That was the film it seems to have premiered under at the Toronto Film Festival in 2021. But here in the UK it's known as The Desperate Hour, and comes from a couple of interesting filmmakers. It is directed by Philip Noyce, who back in the late 80s and early 90s had a string of pretty notable films. Films like Dead Calm, Blind Fury, 
Patriot Games, Sliver, and Clear and Present Danger. Oh, he also did The Bone Collector, which is a pretty good whodunit. So some reasonably notable films in the late 80s all the way through the 90s. But he's tailed off since then, as is so often the case with ageing directors, and he hasn't done anything really notable recently. He tried to get a TV series of Gone Baby Gone off the ground. He directed a pilot which ended up just being a TV movie. He did a movie which got released onto streaming at the beginning of last year, Above Suspicion, about the first FBI agent who was convicted of murder. And now he's got this film, The Desperate Hour slash Lakewood, which has been written by Chris Sparling, who has a really interesting CV as a writer. On his CV are such things as The Sea of Trees, which, despite being directed by Gus Van Sant and starring Matthew McConaughey, got absolutely destroyed by the critics. He's also done the disaster movie Greenland, and recently he wrote the Netflix thriller Intrusion, an incredibly Dumb film starring Frida Pinto, which I reviewed a couple of months ago. But perhaps most relevant on Chris Sparling's CV is he wrote the film Buried in 2010, with Ryan Reynolds being buried alive as a military contractor in Iraq with only a cell phone for company and only other people on the end of that cell phone as part of the film. Now, I actually really, really liked the thriller Buried. It's a really interesting concept. One person on screen for the entire running time of the film with a cell phone. And that is essentially what we have here in The Desperate Hour as well. So I think Chris Sparling has a mindset when writing movies. He also wrote a movie called ATM which involves one of those ATM booths they have in the States, with three people trapped inside one of these booths, with a mysterious killer trying to get at them. Small-scale films with people communicating with unseen outsiders, that's something that Chris Sparling does, and that's what we have here in The Desperate Hour, which is set in the fictional town of Lakewood, and Naomi Watts is a woman who we very quickly establish at the beginning of the film is still dealing with the death of her husband. And the one-year anniversary of her husband's death is just around the corner. And this is not only affecting her, it is also affecting her teenage son, Colton Gobbo. One morning, Naomi Watts decides to go up for a run to clear her head taking a personal day off from work and just going off running into the woods to be alone with her thoughts, alone with her memories of her dead husband. And just before she leaves the house, she tries to get her teenage son, Colton Gobbo, to actually just, you know, get out of bed and go to school. And is not entirely sure that she succeeded, but she goes off into the forest 
on a long, long run. But then she starts getting alerts. There has been an incident at a local school and all the schools have been locked down. And this combined with the fact that as she was heading off on her run, going the other way with sirens blazing, there was lots of cop cars. So now she is desperately concerned as to what's happened to her teenage son and her, I know, six, seven-year-old daughter who definitely went to school. So alone in the forest, miles from anywhere, with only her cell phone for company, she has to try and figure out if her teenage son is in the school what specifically has happened in the school? Is her son in danger? Is there even a possibility that her very troubled son has done something at school? But she's in the middle of nowhere and desperately trying to get to the school. Essentially, this is Naomi Woods running through the forest for about 90 minutes. She's five miles basically from anywhere, so her only option is to essentially run through the forest to her son's school. All the time on the phone to various people, neighbours, friends, 911 dispatchers, police detectives, a lift driver who she is trying to get a lift from, but, you know, she's in the middle of nowhere. A mechanic who happens to have his shop just opposite the school and she's scheduled to pick up a car anyway so that's handy so it's basically Naomi Watts talking to various people as she is running through the forest desperately trying to get to her son's school and hoping against hope that her son hasn't done something really really stupid and yeah I I think As long as you know what you're getting, this is a decent enough film. Using those restrictions that writer Chris Sparling is so fond of, a person alone with only a cell phone for company, structurally this is very, very similar to Buried. And all the different people who she is trying to get information from and actually getting misinformation from several of them. It's a really interesting way of doing it. And it's built up in such a way that her initial thought is, oh shit, something bad has happened at my son's school. And gradually this morphs into, is it possible that my son has done something? I mean, particularly when she finally gets in touch with a police detective and the police detective is asking all these questions i mean what medication is your son on does your son have access to firearms and of course in this situation that's exactly the wrong questions you want to be asking to a terrified mother who is in the middle of nowhere and of course this being a movie and she's running through the woods she's already twisted her ankle i mean That is such a cliché, but it's a cliché for a reason, probably. I mean, if you were running desperately, you know, panicking through woods, you probably would trip over a root and twist your ankle, but that's happened. So she's limping running 
through the words, you know, trying to get to the other side, trying to get to this lift driver she's called up and is sort of like 40 minutes away, which in this particular situation is too far away. But yeah, it's just Naomi Watts in the woods with a cell phone for 90 minutes. I mean, even when she eventually does get into the lift, we never ever see the driver's face. The only faces we see are a little bit at the beginning with her two children and a little bit at the end with the other concerned parents who are waiting for their children to be released from this, what's essentially turned into a hostage situation. The overwhelming majority of this film is just Naomi Watts and a cell phone in the middle of the woods. And essentially this turns into Buried meets Run Lola Run meets Searching, you know, the screen life film starring John Cho. Because a lot of the context and the exposition for this story is told through breaking news reports, which is watching on her phone. And we see Instagram posts from her teenage son as the gradual realisation dawns on her, oh shit, my son might have done something. So she goes back over old Instagram posts, old Instagram videos from her teenage son, and you know, starts to see the signs she should have noticed. And you know, that is a really interesting way of doing it. I mean, telling this story with just a woman and a cell phone in the woods, on one level, is actually kind of impressive. I do think there's enough drama, there's enough intensity that this film does work. And having these contexts, having these Instagram posts, and over the end credits, there's stuff done in the same way, done as a social media video, which asks the question, I mean, this kind of stuff shouldn't happen. And yeah, I think there's there's clearly a point being tried to make. I mean, there's one particular clip which actually gets repeated that Naomi Watts is watching. I mean, as she's trying to get information on this situation in the school, somebody who's you know come out, somebody who survived, a student, is saying, "We got under our tables and turned off the lights, like we've been trained to do." And that little clip is played several times making the point that we live in a society, or at least Americans live in a society, where you need to train your children what to do when a gunman shows up. Now, which makes more sense, having sensible gun laws or having training for when a madman will inevitably show up at your child's school with a firearm? Which makes more sense? But as long as there's crazy Second Amendment nutjobs in America, sensible gun laws will never be a thing. But yeah, I mean, that's clearly the message that Philip Noyce, Chris Sparling and Naomi Watts were trying to get across. But it's going to fall on deaf ears because it always does. But yeah, that's a completely separate issue. And trying to make this a film with a point was too late in the day and didn't really work, particularly since it's an obvious point which has been made over and over and over again and still hasn't made any difference. But regardless, 
as long as you know that this is just Naomi Woods in the forest with a cell phone for 90 minutes, I think it's a perfectly acceptable thriller, telling the story in an intriguing and an unexpected way, and I think mostly succeeding. So for me, The Desperate Hour slash Lakewood, whichever way you find this particular film, is a decent enough little thriller, and for me, it is a meh, and it is available on Sky Cinema. Next up, we have The Humans, which was a mildly Oscar-baity film, which was released on premium streaming at the end of 2021. And I did want to check it out because it is a mildly Oscar-based film. I mean, it's based on an award-winning play, which won Best Play and Best Actress at the Tony Awards in 2016. And it felt like the kind of film that I would appreciate. Because it is essentially sitting around a table talking to each other. The screenplay is by the original playwright Stephen Karam, who also directs this film with an exceptionally good cast. Tony award-winning actress Jane Hudichel reprises her role from the stage play, but she is the only one who does. She is the matriarch of a family gathering in an empty, crumbling apartment in Manhattan for Thanksgiving, with her husband being played by Richard Jenkins, her older daughter being played by Amy Schumer, her younger daughter and the owner of this apartment being played by Beanie Feldstein, whose partner is Stephen Yearn. And as Thanksgiving dinner is taking place around a picnic table in this empty and crumbling apartment in Manhattan, family dramas, family dynamics get brought to the fore. The apartment itself seems to be crowding in on these people and secrets will eventually be revealed and this did sound like my kind of thing yes it was a mildly oscar Basie film which did end up on the gold derby lists of oscar potential but this kind of family drama this kind of conversational film is in general the kind of thing i do like I mean, you can pick out the types of films that you think you will enjoy. I mean, in my particular case, I have a pretty good track record. I mean, I prioritise films on these Oscar lists, which I think I might enjoy the most. I mean, a good example, I've just watched a Japanese animated film, which was on the eligible list for animated feature Oscar. And I saw, oh, it's a film about filmmaking. That's the kind of thing that I generally like. And I was right. I really, really enjoyed Pompo the Cinephile. So if you ever get a chance to watch that, I do thoroughly recommend it. And I thought, okay, let's prioritise the humans, especially since after this premium release on streaming platforms, it has very, very quickly, I mean, disturbingly quickly, showed up on Netflix. So I could watch it for free. So I did prioritise it. But I didn't actually like The Humans very much. I mean, it was exactly my type of film, but I don't think it actually worked as well as 
I was hoping it would. I mean, an award-winning play, family dynamics inside this crumbling apartment. I mean, excellent, excellent cast. I mean, Richard Jenkins is an outstanding actor. I mean, Jane Houdichel, I'm not familiar with, but she won the Tony for this role. And on stage, her husband was being played by Reed Birney, who we recently saw in Mass and the 50-year-old version. So he's a good actor as well. I mean, and Amy Schumer, Beanie Feldstein, and Stephen Yuen are all really good. Oh, and there's also June Squibb as the Alzheimer's suffering grandmother of the family, who doesn't really have any dialogue per se, but just shouts out random, nonsensical things at inappropriate moments. So, yeah, all round an excellent cast, and the setup and the idea of it really appealed to me but i honestly don't think it was executed particularly well i think this is underplayed to a fault it's one of those situations which is trying to create an underlying sense of menace an underlying sense that something is not right here there's lots of stuff about faith and the lack of faith one of the first things that jane hudichel gives her daughter beanie feldstein as kind of a housewarming gift is a statue of the virgin mary to her determinedly not religious daughter beanie feldstein and there's later a conversation about being in therapy and dealing with depression and richard jenkins as she oh, we're not depressed, we just go to church and that makes it better. Yeah, there's a situation which gets revealed by the end of the film where it says, it's okay, we've been to church, we've sorted it, when really they should be going to therapy and they're not. And that is one of the underlying themes of this film is the generational thing. And that issue which comes up towards the end of the film, I will be coming back to because that's my major issue with this entire play. but. You know, the generational gap, the idea that this crumbling apartment that Beanie Feldstein and Stephen Yuan have moved into, it's completely empty. It's just got, you know, an air mattress and some picnic tables. The movers are stuck in traffic in Queens. And the only reason the family has come around at all is that it's Thanksgiving. I mean, we need to be together. If it wasn't Thanksgiving, there's no way that Beanie Feldstein and Stephen Yuan would invite... Beanie Feldstein's family into this empty, crumbling apartment. And it's a cliche, but in this situation, it's absolutely accurate that the flat itself, the apartment itself, is a character in and of itself in this story. We have so many close ups of these peeling walls, water leaks coming down the wall, noises from outside. I mean, the loud noises of the woman in the flat above walking or you know jumping up and down seemingly on her floorboards the waste disposal making more noise than it needs to the laundry room making more noise than it needs to there's so many noises so many pieces of darkness i mean there's light bulbs constantly blowing and leaving the place in darkness this is a crumbling apartment which, yes, I mean, it, you can fix this up, but right now it's 
a horoscope. I mean, with very, very little tweaking, this would absolutely make an accurate setting for a horror movie. And there are quite a few horror movie tropes which are used in this family drama, because that's essentially what it is. Alongside the fact that it's a film based on a play which is set in New York. So 9-11 also casts a disturbingly large shadow over this play as well. But it's mostly about the family dynamics. It's mostly about these two daughters, Amy Schumer and Beanie Feldstein, not being able to connect properly with their parents, their very religious mother and their very stoic father. Amy Schumer is a lawyer who, thanks to some medical issues, is probably going to lose her job, has already lost her girlfriend, and is really not dealing well with that breakup. And her father's not helping by saying, oh yeah, there's plenty of fish in the sea, you'll do great. And Beanie Feldstein is an aspiring musician, an aspiring composer, and she's struggling mightily, and her father just dismisses her artistic endeavours outright. You know, you should just get a job in retail, you know, build yourself up, drag yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, what are you doing for money, you aspiring composer? I mean, there's no support, there's no encouragement from either of the parents. I mean, they just do not understand each other. They're from different generations. And that's kind of what we have here. And all of this is subtly going on in the background. But at the end of the film slash play, there's a revelation made, which, personally speaking, I think should have been the middle of the play. All of this low-level resentment, this low-level conflict throughout the majority of the play, is culminated by this big revelation, and this exposes some of the issues which have been subtext, but now they have become text. And for my taste, as far as I'm concerned, this revelation comes too late in the film slash play for it to have any effect. If that revelation had been shifted to the middle of the play, then we could have had lots of arguments and discussions coming off of that, and we could have had further revelations, further examinations of all these issues, which is clearly going on in this family. But no, we have this big revelation and then not enough time to really deal with it, and not enough discussion is had about what this means to these different generations, these different members of the family. So, from what I can see, there's not enough here. It's very, very low-key, very subtle, and you know the build-up is done well, but it's all build-up, and the payoff comes far too late, and we can't really deal with it. So, what what's going on? And uh, there's so much to like here. I mean, the, as I said, the cast is excellent. I find it a little weird that the straight actress Amy Schumer is playing gay and the gay actress Beanie Feldstein is playing straight. There's a line of dialogue in this film, which must be from the original play, about, you know, I, I don't understand why people would watch that zombie show late at night. 
And this line comes out of the mouth of Jane Houdichel when Stephen Yuen, star of The Walking Dead, is in the other room, which was an interesting angle to take. And I also think making the apartment itself so much a part of this setup, with so many close-ups of the crumbling wallpaper and the damp and the electricity not working, Many, many shots framed through the doorways of this apartment. You know, the house, you know, encroaching on them, trapping these people, enclosing them. It's a menacing state of affairs. So there's so much to like about it. But I think this was underplayed to a fault with big revelations coming too late in the day to be effective. So. Yeah, I'm surprised. I really expected to really, really like The Humans. It seemed like exactly the kind of film I gravitate towards. But at the end of the day, it wasn't. I didn't especially like it, but it's well acted enough and there's a, a couple of really good moments. So it's not a complete wash. But for me, The Humans, available now through streaming platforms at a regular price as well as available through netflix the humans is for me a rather disappointing meh and lastly in this section we have the hating game the final film i discovered that was released in time for valentine's day This one was released onto Amazon Prime Video and stars Lucy Hale, who became a tween girl icon with her role on the TV show Pretty Little Liars and has now gone on to other things like Katie Keene, which is in somewhat of the same milieu. She's also done the Scream Queen thing. She was in Scream 4 and Blumhouse's Fantasy Island and Truth or Dare and stuff like that. But I think she's making a concerted effort to mature her image a little bit. She also starred in the British crime drama Ragdoll, which is very extravagant, very extreme, very gory. And I think she was actually good in it. So yeah, of the type of tween girl icon actress scream queen that lucy hale fits into i mean that category that she fits most easily into i think she's actually got talent but now she's starring in this fairly standard rom-com the hating game in which she is the second in command of a publishing house in new york which has recently had to merge with another publishing house, much to the chagrin of everybody involved. Lucy Hale's publishing house is a very, very literary publishing house, the kind of prestige, award-winning novels that literary magazines gush over, whereas the company that they've had to merge with to stave off bankruptcy is the cheesy populist kind of publishing house which ghost writes sports stars autobiographies anything lurid anything prurient anything that sells this is the publishing company 
you go to. And the second in command of that company, and therefore the man that Lucy Hale has to share an office with, is Austin Stowell. This huge, handsome beefcake of a man who Lucy Hale, of course, absolutely hates. Her desk is wooden, it's messy, she has stuffed bookshelves, stuffed wooden bookshelves behind her. Whereas across the room from her is Austin Stowell with a steel grey desk, a very ordered, very neat desk. Filing cabinets behind him, again, steel grey. And this was probably deliberate and possibly keeps up with the aesthetic, but Lucy Hale uses a Windows laptop, whereas Austin Stowell uses a Mac laptop. And the Mac clean, clear aesthetic is definitely what Austin Stowell is going for. He even wears the same five shirts in the same order every week. And the fact that Lucy Hale has noticed this is perhaps telling in and of itself. Because these two people hate each other. They are constantly doing games with each other. You're constantly trying to get the mental one-upmanship over each other. To the extent that the HR manager is just exasperated with them. I mean, 90% of her work is people complaining about these two people fighting with each other. It's becoming an issue. And then it is announced that a new position will be created. The managing director of this combined publishing house, and of course both Lucy Harrell and Austin Stowell, are the obvious candidates to fill this post. So, a wager is made. Whichever one of these two people gets this new job, I mean, because clearly one or other of them is going to get this job, the other one will immediately resign and get out of their lives for good. But basically the same night that this wager is made, Lucy Hale has a sex dream about Austin Stowell and this completely throws her off her game because, oh no, is the fact I hate this man so much actually a signpost that I am desperately in love with him. This is a rom-com. What do you think? I mean, this trope of absolutely hating each other and it being a signpost that eventually you will fall head over heels in love with somebody is such a common trope. I mean, that's even the opening voiceover of this film. is Lucy Hale saying there's a very thin line between falling in love with somebody, completely hating somebody. I mean, that's actually the opening line of dialogue of the film. So you know exactly where this is going. But in this particular case, I really do think they've taken it too far. The idea is that, you know, the title of this film, The Hating Game, is apposite because these two people are playing games with each other, you know, mentally torturing each other. In an early scene, they kind of do that childish mirroring thing where everything that Lucy Hale does on her desk is immediately mirrored by Austin Stowell on his desk. I mean, even when Lucy Hale puts on lipstick, Austin Stowell extends his middle finger and rubs that over his lips. I mean, it, it's childish. 
it's mental torture, and this is not the only game, quote unquote, that these two people play with each other. It's all about mentally torturing your opponent and hating them. And then this sex dream happens, and not long after that, there's a scene where both Lucy Hale and Austin Stoll get in an elevator together, and Lucy Hale cannot help herself but throw herself at Austin Stoll and passionately start kissing him. And this, I think for me, was ultimately the turning point of the movie. I mean, the way things developed after that scene really, really bothered me. Because I assumed that this was another fantasy sequence. Because it has already been established that fantasy sequences are going to be visualised in this film, with Lucy Hale alone in bed, and suddenly Austin Stowell is spooning her and whispering in her ear and kissing her, and Lucy Hale is clearly getting very turned on by this, in a really confusing way, because, you know, I hate this person, why am I having a sex dream about him? But we visualise it as an audience. so. Fantasy sequences are on the table, and therefore, this kiss in the elevator, I assumed, was another fantasy sequence. But as it turns out, it wasn't. Really early in the film, they act on the attraction that is clearly there, the magnetism that they have for each other, and then try to deny it, try to walk away from it try to downplay it in that kind of rom-com way but i really do think they shot their bolt too early because the games quote unquote continue and it really started feeling to me like these two people i mean yes there might be some animal magnetism between them but i started really really questioning whether these two people were emotionally mature enough to actually form a long-lasting bond, or whether they were just horny and throwing themselves at each other. And that's not healthy. And the longer this relationship develops, the longer the lust for the other person is the operating factor, I really started thinking, you know, these two people aren't actually healthy for each other. This is not a good relationship. I mean, yes, towards the end, they try and say that, you know, this has been a long time coming. I mean, right from the start, they were attracted to each other. And Austin Stowell chose a particular shade of green for his bedroom walls because it matched Lucy Hale's eyes. I mean, uh, and A, that's kind of stalkerish. And B, it's too late in the day in the actual film for that to mean anything because the emotional maturity that you need to have a long standing, healthy relationship just isn't there. And I also didn't like the treatment of this particular rom-com's Baxter. Now, the Baxter is a concept in rom-coms which I've brought up many times in the past. It's a standing trope of romantic comedies. The Baxter is the person in the romantic comedy who the usually female protagonist is dating but is clearly not the person that she's going to end up by the end of the film because she's going to go off with the object of the affections. 
And the Baxter in this particular situation is played by an actor named Damon Dauno, who appears to be a Broadway guy more than anything. But anyway, Damon Dauno, or possibly Dauno. Uh, yeah, it's probably Dauno, isn't it? But anyway, Damon Dauno is the Baxter. He's the nice, sweet graphic designer who, thanks to this merger, is basically just lost his job. And a week before he leaves, after Lucy Howe has unwisely said, yes, I have a date tonight, of course I have a date tonight, and then immediately has to find a date, so she goes over to Damon D'Erno, who clearly has a crush on her, and says, hey, do you want to go out tonight? Uh, it's not at all relevant that at this bar we're probably also going to meet Austin Stowells. And Damon D'Erno, of course, agrees to this, and they seem pretty good together. I mean, Lucy Hale has one difficult moment where she pretends to agree with Damon D'Erno about one particular novel, a novel that she's really passionate about, but she pretends to dislike it because Damon D'Erno doesn't like it. But other than that, they seem pretty good together. They actually have a surprising amount in common. They're nice together. They're sweet together. But as soon as Lucy Hale admits, yes, I do kind of love Austin Stoll, Damon D'Erno is kicked to the curb immediately, and he just takes it. No fight whatsoever. No acknowledgement that, yeah, this probably wasn't a good idea. Damon D'Erno is basically playing it like, yeah, I'm still attracted to you. I still would like to date you, but you're clearly not into it, so I guess I'm going to have to withdraw gracefully. And no. No, that is just the worst treatment of a Baxter I think I've ever seen. I mean, and this is such a common trope that Michael Showalter actually made a film called The Baxter, starring himself and Michelle Williams. And that's actually a, a sweet little rom-com. But yeah, the, the worst treatment of a Baxter I think I've ever seen. And of course, Lucy Hale is invited as the plus one to Austin Stowell's brother's wedding. And there's some emotional conflict there. And in most films, you would have expected that to be you know, the moment that breaks up this couple and eventually they're going to come up together. But that would be the moment. I mean, this is some genuine emotional turmoil. Austin Stowell has deliberately concealed something from Lucy Hale, something that she absolutely needed to know. Austin Stowell has deliberately hid something from her and slept with her anyway. By this point, they have actually slept together and are basically a couple, even though neither of them have really admitted it. But even though a sexual relationship has started, a secret has been kept from Lucy Hale. And again, nothing is done about it. This is genuine trauma. I mean, this is something that Lucy Hale has an absolute legitimate complaint about. Austin Stowell has clearly done something wrong, and yet Lucy Hale lets him get away with it. There's no conflict whatsoever to this really, really big revelation. Even in a standard rom-com, and you're not going to take that opportunity for some genuine and legitimate emotional turmoil 
some legitimate reasons to break up before inevitably coming back at the end. If you're not going to take that opportunity, what's the fucking point of doing it in the first place? There was no need for that if you weren't going to use it. I mean, the structure of this film is so boneheaded. I mean, I'm enough of a sap nowadays that a well-executed romantic comedy does work on me. I mean, in, even in this Valentine's Day sequence. I mean, the albeit BDSM romance love unleashes worked on me. The kind of anti-rom-com I Want You Back worked on me. Marry Me on a very, very cheesy basic level worked on me. This didn't. This is going through the motions and not going through all the motions it needed to go through with two people who I am absolutely convinced, even by the end of the film, are not emotionally mature enough to actually make this work. They're so childlike in their attitudes to romance and connection that this is going to blow up spectacularly within a couple of years. And how is that good? How is that fair? I just don't believe that this is a long-lasting, stable relationship by the end of the film. And that is the base necessity for a romantic comedy. So this film failed. It failed in the fundamental purpose for its existence. The relationship I don't buy enough. The conflict I don't buy enough, particularly since they didn't use legitimate conflict that was there. And it just ended up not working in the slightest. For me, I think I'm going to give this a nay. I mean, it's not the most determined nay, the most obvious nay I've ever given. It's not so poorly made that I can't support it. I mean, the acting is good enough. I don't particularly buy the chemistry between the two leads, but their individual acting is good enough. But I think it fundamentally missed what this kind of film is supposed to be about. So even though it's not the most passionate, nay, hating game on Amazon Prime is for me a nay. Netflix and chill. The latest director to take the Netflix dollar, following on from such names as Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Steven Soderbergh, Noah Baumbach, Alfonso Cuaron and Bong Joon-ho, is the French director Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who has not made a film in quite some time. He burst onto the scene in the late 90s, directing the films Delicatessen and The City of Lost Children, alongside Marc Carreau. He then took the Hollywood dollar to direct Alien Resurrection, which did not get very good responses, but came back with a vengeance with what is probably Jean-Pierre Genet's magnum opus, Amélie, the adorable and quirky French film which gave the world Audrey Tattoo. I'm personally acquainted with somebody who named his daughter Amélie after that film. It's 
a genuine masterpiece, in my opinion. But Jean-Pierre Genet has not made very many films since then. I really don't know the reasons. I mean, his last feature-length film was in 2013, The Young and Prodigious T.S. Spivet, which is not very well remembered, but I actually really, really liked it. I gave it a Raw Footage Award, or gave it an honourable mention in my Raw Footage Awards for Best Ensemble in 2013. So, yeah, Jean-Pierre Genet really hasn't been very prolific at all, but he has come back with this film, Big Bug, which has been released onto Netflix. It is set in a future world, and being Jean-Pierre Genet, a very candy-coloured, hyperactive, Jetsons-style future, where basically everything is done by AI. And living in this world is a middle-aged housewife, Elsa Zilberstein, who, at the beginning of the movie, is trying to hook up with a handsome man she has met on a dating app, Stefan de Groot, who, as he is trying to get in the pants of Elsa Zilberstein, has brought his teenage son, Ailey Tonat, along with him. And into this situation, rather awkwardly, comes in Elsa Zilberstein's ex-husband, Yusuf Haji, with his bimbo secretary slash potential future next wife, Claire Schust, and eventually also the nosy neighbour Isabel Nanti and Elsa Zilberstein's teenage daughter Marisol Furtard also join the party. And whilst all these people are crammed into this futuristic house, being aided by the maid android Claude Perron and a AI robot that Yusuf Haji built in the past, voiced by Andre Dussolier, the robot apocalypse happens. And in order to protect their masters slash owners slash friends from the dangerous environment outside, the smart house decides to lock everybody inside. So these awkward interactions with people who shouldn't really be hanging out together for any length of time continue, and all the while they are trying to get out of the prison that they are in and try and work out the differences with their domestic robots and the violent Yonix robots outside all of whom are played by Francois Levantal. So can these annoying suburbanites survive the robot apocalypse and survive each other? And that's a pretty decent setup for a movie, particularly when it is put in the hands of a visual stylist like Jean-Pierre Jeunet. I think in terms of sheer visual flair, Jean-Pierre Genet has a leg up on almost anybody in the world. And this is no exception. I mean, the ideas that are presented in this film in a very retro-futurist way, 
this candy-coated Jetsons style is really well done. I mean, and as well as having this retro-futurist style, I mean, like a, a what a 50s or 60s person might think the future would look like, there's also some very relevant modern-day stuff. There are giant floating billboards which hover outside these houses. They know you by name and know you well enough that they try to sell you specific things at specific times. And that feels only a short leap away from where we are right now. Early in the film, they bring out some snacks, and the snacks are grilled crickets. The daughter of Elsa Zilberstein and Yusuf Haji Marisol Furtard was adopted from the Netherlands when the Netherlands flooded. And one of the major, major issues throughout the entirety of this film is the AC has been shut off by these Yonix robots who have taken over or attempting to take over. And that means that it is unbearably hot in this house, which of course makes the fractious relationships that everybody has even more fractious. I mean, this is Jean-Pierre Genet poking fun and poking light fun at the self-imposed doom that the human race is rapidly running towards. I mean, not only the increasing dependence on robots and AI, but also the climate crisis, which is not going away, no matter how much we want to pretend it is, or at least oil companies want to make us pretend that it is. So this is a film which has some points, some gentle satire, but it also has some satire about interpersonal relationships. I mean, Elsa Zilberstein has invited over Stefan de Groot, clearly mutually intending that this night will end up in sex, and despite that, the teenage son has tagged along, which is never adequately explained. But of course, he eventually starts making eyes at the teenage daughter of the house when she decides to show up, and there's some connection there as well. And Yusuf Haji showing up with his bimbo secretary and all the secretary wants is to go to this fantastic resort location because she is basically insisting that Yusuf Haji propose to her at this romantic holiday destination. So throughout the course of the film, her repeated mantra is, we need to go to Isola Paradiso so I can get proposed to. And in order to do so, she starts basically collaborating with the robots. I mean, She's not bright enough to realise that human race is in threat, not just her potential proposal. And she is an active participant in certain things that these robots are trying to do to the humans. There's a repeated thing that keeps on coming up on the TV screens, I mean the floating holographic TV screens that are in this house. Uh, a show called Humanus Ridiculous, where robots are humiliating and torturing humans for the sake of entertainment. And this is supposed to be entertainment. This is what the human race has devolved to. And all of these points are being made by Jean-Pierre Genet. And honestly, it's a mess. It really is a mess. I mean, he's just throwing little bits here and there. It's chaos. 
there are valid issues raised, but in not any particularly strident way. But it looks really interesting. I mean, the, the visual style of this is fascinating. And the interaction between these humans and the domestic robots which are inside the house, particularly the maid played by Claude Perron, and you know, the desperate need for these robots to not only feel part of the family, but also to feel human, is very telling. I mean, there's moments at the beginning of the film where Claude Perron is looking at her mistress, Elsa Zilberstein, and the potential new love interest, Stefan de Groot, and analysing them and saying, you know, Stefan de Groot is being 20% sincere and 80% horny, or, or you know, worse to that effect. So you're making the subtext text. And it, it's also really interesting that when the domestic robot, which in the past Yusuf Hadji, the husband, made, called Einstein and voiced by Andre Dussolier, the constant request is that the intelligence of this AI robot be reduced to one. I mean, you have made it this robot so humongously intelligent that you are uncomfortable with it. So you are constantly asking the robot to make itself dumber so you are more comfortable with it, which I think in and of itself is a very, very interesting point. I mean, being set in the near future... There's a conversation between the two teenagers in the house, and one of them asks the other, who's this Adolf Hitler you keep talking about? And I think that makes a point on several different levels. I mean, it's a film which gently satirises the hell-bent, self-destructive streak that the human race has. It's notable that Elsa Silberstein is a very nostalgic character, she is constantly practicing handwriting on paper with a pen, which everybody else thinks is utterly ridiculous. I mean, nobody needs to do that anymore. She has things in little bell jars, you know, museum pieces basically, but these are things of the modern day, like a Rubik's Cube, like a telephone, things which have become obsolete because of this perfect AI utopia that exists. It is seen as very weird that Elsa Zilberstein has an extensive library of actual books. And when eventually one of these Yonix robots played by François Lavental enters the house, one of the first thing he does is, very notably, he burns the books. And I mean, all of these things are clearly messages and satires that Jean-Pierre Genet wanted to put in this film. But He's just chucking everything into the mix and seeing what sticks. And yeah, I mean, this chaotic, fun approach, I guess, kind of works. But as an entire film, I can't say this is a masterpiece, but I did enjoy myself watching it because it's a Jean-Pierre Jeunet film. Of course, Dominique Pinon makes a brief appearance. I mean, it's more or less a cameo as one of the people walking past outside this enclosed house. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Dominique Pinon has been in all of Jean-Pierre Genet um, and indeed Mark Caro's films. But yeah, Dominique Pinon is a, a blink and you'll miss him cameo in this. 
and Jean-Pierre Jeunet has made a film in the Jean-Pierre Jeunet style. Hugely visually inventive and stylish, but kind of chaotic and a little bit of a mess. But I found it entertaining nonetheless. This is not a masterpiece, but it is enjoyable. And as far as I'm concerned, Big Bug, available through Netflix, is a pretty high meh. Coming attractions. As far as the cinematic landscape is concerned, there is only one film being released next week, and that is The Batman. Robert Pattinson's tagging in to that particular character. Directed by Matt Reeves at apparently a three-hour running length, basically every cinema is completely taken over by The Batman. My local Odeon has no less than 18 screenings of The Batman this coming Friday, with no less than four midnight screenings. It's completely taking over. And for that reason, there's not a lot else that is being released cinematically this week. The one exception is a film called Ali and Ava which I have actually already seen in a preview screening. It is the latest film from British director Clio Barnard, who I must admit I am not a fan of, but I was intrigued by this film Ali and Ava, loosely inspired by Rainer Werner Fassbinder's Ali Fear Eats the Soul. It is the story of a Pakistani-British man, Adil Akhtar, who forms a relationship with an older, British woman of Irish background, Claire Rushbrook. And the people surrounding this odd couple romance really don't want them to end up together. So how can this unconventional relationship survive in the harsh environs of Bradford's council estate? So yeah, I was intrigued by Ali and Ava, and I must admit, I actually really liked it. So if you are looking for an alternative to The Batman at the cinema this week, or indeed if you've already seen The Batman, then might I suggest you also check out Ali and Ava, because I did like it, and a full review will be in the next episode. On streaming platforms, I still have lots of Oscar bait-type films I need to tick off my list before I fully commit myself to my Oscar preview shows. I still want to check out Sean Penn's directorial effort Flag Day, starring himself and his daughter Dylan Penn. It's the story of a young woman who doesn't realise that her father is one of the biggest counterfeiters in American history. And I also want to check out the animated feature CryptoZoo. Having looked at it, I'm not sure I'm going to like it very much, but it is done by Dash Shaw, whose last animated feature, My Entire High School Sinking Into the Sea, I actually really, really liked. So, yeah, I better check out Cryptozoo just in case I want to consider it as one of the best animated features of the year at my Oscar previews. Following my recent foray onto Shudder.com, I do want to check out the film The Last Thing Mary Saw, and I've also added to the list 
a film called They Live in the Grey, which looks like a pretty basic horror haunted house movie, but the premise does sound a little bit intriguing, so I may as well check that out as well. It's about a social worker who investigates a possibly abused child, and when she visits the house, she realises that there is a supernatural entity which is interfering in the lives of these people. And she noticed this because of her incipient psychic powers which are manifesting themselves. So, could be a pretty standard horror film, but I'm intrigued nonetheless. And very soon there will also be an animated feature released onto Shudder, or at least it's scheduled to be released onto Shudder, which was among the long list for animated feature this year. And I've already seen through actually means it's called The Spine of Night and yeah, interesting. But yeah, that's another thing to keep an eye out if you do have a Shudder subscription. And weirdly being released onto Disney Plus this week is a film called Fresh. Now this is a film which debuted at festivals. I think it was the South by Southwest festival this year. And in America, it has ended up on Hulu.com. And we don't have Hulu here in the UK, but the parent company of Hulu is Disney. So it is becoming increasingly common, and I think it possibly might even be a direct companion deal that if a film ends up in Hulu on the States, it will end up on Star on Disney Plus here in the UK. So. This very odd film has ended up on Disney+. Plus. I mean, this is only a couple of weeks after the miniseries Pam and Tommy ended up on Disney+. Plus. I mean, those kinds of things just don't feel like Disney, but that's the world we're living in, where Disney basically owns all of entertainment. But anyway, this particular film is called Fresh, where a young woman played by Daisy Edgar-Jones, has basically given up on dating. She is so sick of all the weirdos and creeps that she finds on dating apps that she has basically given up. But wouldn't you know it, as soon as she does give up, she meets a nice guy in her local supermarket, played by Sebastian Stan. And sparks fly, they start dating each other, until it gets weird. And she finds herself drugged and trapped in a house and trying to fend off Sebastian Stan's very specific appetites. Uh, yeah, this looks like a very disturbing type of film. And yeah, with a couple of the posters that are out there, you can work out the subtext of the film or what I think is going to be the subtext of the film. But uh, yeah, that looks like a weird little movie and it is going to be on Disney Plus this week and that has been added to the list, but I probably won't get to it until after I've done all my Oscar preview stuff. So yeah, on the list, but not for immediate consumption, but wanted to let you know that Fresh is going to be released on Disney Plus. On Netflix, we have an adventure film from Iceland, even though it is in the English language. It is starring, and I believe even written by Nikolai Costa-Waldau, and is about the first expedition that tried to prove that Greenland was one landmass. 
And therefore, the United States, who had tried to raise a settlement on the northwest part of Greenland, had no right to it, since Denmark had already settled the southeast. And in order to prove that Greenland is one landmass, Nikolai Costawaldo and an inexperienced assistant played by Joe Cole go on this reckless snowbound adventure trying to prove that Greenland is one landmass. So that looks like it could be uh, an adventure survival story worth checking out. So Against the Ice on Netflix. Also released this week is an Italian film called The Invisible Thread, in which a teenage boy starts making a film documentary for a school project about his gay fathers. But as he is making this video, real-life drama starts unfolding between his gay fathers, and suddenly he's making a very different film than what he set out to do. And all the while, of course, he's in the throes of his first love with a girl in his class. So, yeah, that could be a cute family drama from Italy, The Invisible Thread. And also released onto Netflix this week is a Northern Irish set film called Night Ride, which is one of my favourite subgenres of film. It is a one-take movie, or at least it has been advertised as a one-take movie, as a criminal who is desperately trying to go straight wants to pull off one last huge drug deal. But, of course, everything goes wrong and suddenly he's trying to escape the criminal element and the police, trying to get rid of this huge bag of cocaine he's got in his car. And all of this is apparently taking place in one shot, in real time. So, yeah, that could be kind of interesting. So I do want to check out Night Ride on Netflix. And, of course, in between all of that, I'm still ticking off the list of films I need to watch before I commit myself to my Oscar preview show. I've got quite a lot of them out of the way, and that includes there's a preview screening at the Little Theatre this week of the Kosovan Oscar shortlisted film Hive. So that's made my life a little bit easier because I can legally pay for and watch that at the cinema. So, yeah, that's always going on in the background and I haven't got all that many films left that I really feel I need to watch before I commit myself to my Oscar preview shows but those will be coming my Oscar preview videos as I promised this year will be coming relatively shortly and I am continuing to work on them so yeah lots and lots of stuff coming but for right now that's the end of this particular episode and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay Nay Omer presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>